We're reading from page 1003 in your church Bibles. Page 1003, we're reading Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, The people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the man, the mat that the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralysed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is God's word. Thanks, Sarah. Morning, my name's Phil, I'm the Associate Vicar, and it's my privilege to look through Mark 2 with us this morning. If you keep that passage open and you've got an outline to to give you a rough idea where we're going, let's pray for God's help as we look at his word together. Father God, we ask that you would help us by your spirit this morning, not just to understand what words mean, but to believe in our hearts what you tell us matters most, that we might prize and treasure forgiveness above all things. Amen. Uh, I call it um, the stingy genie conundrum. So as you're uh, going through um, doing your Marie Kondo minimizing of your house, you happen across an old lamp and you rub it and whoosh. There appears the genie who says, I am the stingy genie of the lamp. You get one wish. Uh, Oh, okay. Uh, One wish. What do you do? What's the one thing? If you could solve one problem in your life, If you could address one issue, if you could change one reality, what would it be? Uh, Maybe it's healing from a serious health condition for you or for a loved one. Maybe it's the finances to make family life just comfortable and not a complete struggle or, or to save your business. Maybe it's restoration of a broken relationship. Maybe it's time travel, just go back and just be able to change that one thing that one mistake that my life has never really recovered from? What's your greatest need? 
What's the greatest problem that afflicts your life that you would do anything to change if you could? Well, Jesus gives a surprising, shocking, actually, answer to that question. He says, look, it's not sickness, it's not relational breakdown or lack of money. The biggest problem in your life is sin. It's sin. Now, I guess many here who are Christians know that already. It's like watching whatever the usual suspects for the second time. The big reveal, the plot twist, yeah, 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 we know it already. But for Christians, we may know that sin is what Jesus says is our biggest problem, but most of us live with a disconnect between that knowledge in our heads and the day-to-day daydreams that govern our hopes and our longings in life. Day-to-day, we focus and we grumble about the many disappointments and struggles. We daydream about winning the lottery or being healed, and we don't feel very much joy or relief about the fact that our sins are forgiven. In the memorable phrase of a friend, we need that truth which sits in our heads to invade our hearts. And it's been my prayer this week as I've been preparing that the Holy Spirit would do just that through Mark 2, that he would take the truth that many of us know in our heads and it would start to invade our hearts. Okay, just two points for us. A shocking cure and an uncomfortable truth. That's four points really, if you look at what I've done in the title. But there we go. And there's a typo, but don't worry. Um, a shocking cure and an uncomfortable truth. Now, we're at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as Mark records it, and Jesus is still up north, and they viewed up north pretty much the way metropolitan elite do now. He's, he, he's not in a place of influence. He's, he's going around his home district, and it's been an extraordinary start, really. The last time he was in the town of Capernaum, where the action takes place today, the last time he was there, he healed every single sick person in the town, emptied the hospital wards completely. He's been preaching in the little local villages and he's returned. And unsurprisingly, as word spreads that he's come back, the people throng in and there's a wild, mad crush to get into the house, to to get close to this incredible man. Verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard he'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers, there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. This is his focus, as we saw. He wants to preach the word of God to them, calling people to turn back to God. But as he does so, there's a rather unusual interruption to his sermon. Some men came, verse 3, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Flat roofs in in that culture. I I mean, just... Stop for a second. Can you imagine the scene? And yet we're told nothing about it. We're told nothing about the reaction of the crowd as bits of plaster fall into their chai lattes. We're told nothing about the reaction of the owner of the house as they look up and see a gaping hole and four grinning faces where their roof used to be. We're told nothing about what people said as this, this man is lowered, rather sort of embarrassed looking, on a, on a mat. Golly, it's raining men. Hallelujah. It's, you know, you just, we're told nothing. You think, hang on, this, this is one of the most incredible scenes anybody would have seen. And nothing is said about any of those things. The most shocking event in most of these people's year, and not a word is spoken. Because Mark wants us to focus on a far more shocking thing, which is the five words Jesus speaks. 
five in Greek, five in English as it happens. Verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. It seems cruel. The greatest healer the world has ever known and an embarrassed-looking, paralyzed man is lowered on a mat, shriveled legs, lying on the floor in front of him in a self-conscious state. And he says, your sins are forgiven. It's like he's taunting him, humiliating him in front of the crowd. Actually, he's not doing any of those things. What he says is shocking, but he's making a profound point. He's telling this man, son, I can see your legs. I know what you want me to do. But your paralysis is not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is your sin. Now, how on earth can he say that? Uh, My best friend lost use of his legs as an adult a few years ago, and it is utterly miserable. And I would do anything if I could to restore them. But at least in our society, there are wheelchairs and disability benefit and disabled access. Back then, there were none of those things. Back then, he was confined to crawling around his house unless he could find four strong friends to carry him. The only way he could move anywhere or do anything. And yet, Jesus says, your sin is worse than being paralyzed. Having sin forgiven, he's saying, is more important and more pressing need than having your legs healed. Now to grasp why on earth Jesus would say that, we need to understand two things really. We need to understand what sin does and where sin leads. What sin does and where sin leads. Sin is in essence rebellion against God. Sin is the, the heart of sin is when we say, God, no, no, no. You're not running the universe. I run my own little world. We take the crown off God's head and put it on ours. And we act as if I get to decide what's right and wrong in my life. I get to decide what I do. I get to be God of my world. Why is that so serious? Well, there's lots of ways to answer it. But one way is to see that all suffering is ultimately caused by sin. All suffering is caused by sin. Now, not in the one-to-one way that if someone is suffering, they must have done something to deserve it. It's their fault. Cosmic justice for what they did sometime earlier. No, that's the wicked teaching of karma. And Jesus explicitly says, that's a lie. That's a lie. You can see in Luke 13 and John 9. But there is a big picture sense in which there would be no suffering in the world at all if it wasn't for our sin. So God... God's given us as humanity good rules and his good rules there are lots of ways to think about them but one way just one way is that they're like the safety protocols at a virus laboratory they're designed to stop harmful things escaping and causing desperate harm and damage but when humanity rejected God it's like we opened the door and we allowed the virus in to infect and ruin our world to bring darkness and suffering and pain When humanity sinned and turned away from God, the world itself was corrupted and so there is cancer and earthquakes and malaria and disability. And humanity too was corrupted. The more we put ourselves at the center of our own little worlds, the more we cause harm to people around us. And so sin is the root cause of every crime that's ever been committed. 
Sin is the root cause of every racist insult that's degraded the image of God in someone. Sin is the root cause of every adulterous affair that's destroyed a family. Sin is the root cause of every violent mugging that traumatized and terrified someone. Sin is the root cause of every act of child abuse that took fragile innocence and replaced it with brokenness and misery and shame. Sin is the common link between that savage stabbing of the girl in Croydon this week and my selfish laziness, leaving my wife to clear up a mess that I've made. They're all symptoms of the one disease, sin. That is what sin does. And that is why if Jesus just healed the man's legs but did nothing about his sin, it would be like giving paracetamol to someone with cancer. Just pain relief for the symptoms but doing nothing about the underlying disease that's killing them. And because of all this, because of what sin does, it's right that sin leads to judgment. See, the Bible teaches sin has an expiry date. God loves this creation and his children far too much to allow sin to carry on for the rest of time. He has set a date when he will judge and destroy all that is sinful. When Jesus returns, God is going to remake the the universe perfect into a paradise, the paradise that all of us truly long for. And on that day, he will judge all sin. And a loving, good God cannot turn a blind eye to our sins when sin has brought such misery through human history. So all sinners will be cast out forever on that day. And that means that nothing is as important as having sin dealt with before it is too late. Uh, Jesus is hinting as he deals with this paralyzed man at something he'll say explicitly a few chapters later in, in Mark 9 and verse 43. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go to hell where the fire never goes out. Saying, look, it would be better for this man to live 80 difficult years of disability on earth, but to be forgiven and heading for eternal delight, than to live a full, rich life with a body that worked, but to face Almighty God with his sins unforgiven come judgment day. What do you think the biggest problem in your life is? What is the thing that you would give anything to change? Jesus says, oh look, nothing, nothing is as important as having your sin forgiven. Secondly, a stunning claim and a powerful proof. Now, I don't know if the crowd were as shocked as perhaps we are by Jesus' claim that this man's sins are a more serious issue than his disability. But one group isn't shocked, they're offended. And they're not offended by Jesus' teaching about the seriousness of sin. Verse 6, Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Teachers of the law are one of three groups, uh, slightly overlapping groups of religious leaders that we'll meet in the Gospels. Uh, They're experts in the Bible, and they would no doubt have agreed, look, yep, sin is the man's most serious problem. But they're much more concerned about, as they see it, the sin being committed by somebody else, namely Jesus. He's blaspheming. He's he's claiming to be God. Pause. 
This is the first of uh, five scenes of escalating conflict with the religious leaders leading up to chapter 3, verse 6, where they say, this man's got to die. Jesus has got to die. And the charge, interestingly, that they finally managed to convict him of and condemn him for at the end of Mark's gospel in chapter 14, verse 64, is this first charge, blasphemy, claiming to be God. And the logic that they use in verse 7, well, it's almost, almost perfect. Sin is an offense against God. Therefore, only God can forgive sin. Jesus claims to forgive sin. Therefore, Jesus is claiming to be God. Condemn him. I mean, if um, Ellen hadn't liked something that Sam had said when they were doing the, the student um, intro earlier, and Ellen had headbutted Sam um, in, you know, really hard, and uh, Sam's spitting teeth and, uh, you know, bleeding on the, on the stage floor, and I said, that's quite all right, Ellen, I forgive you. <laughs> it's not my place, you, you can't forgive, you can't forgive Ellen, you're not the one lying on the floor. It's Sam who's lamenting the end of his modelling career and the loss of his teeth. It's, you know, wh- only Sam can forgive Ellen. Yeah. Only God can forgive sin. No human religious leader, no matter how holy, no matter how admired, can forgive sin. Only God. But Jesus doesn't back down. His response is actually just deliberately provocative. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? They ought to have asked, how does an ordinary man know what we're thinking? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. His point is, look, it's a whole lot easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say be healed because no one can see the change when sins are forgiven it's not like a halo appears above the head when sins are forgiven whereas if a paralyzed man is healed well you can tell if it's happened because his legs work and he gets up and walks now this this whole section of this early part of mark is dominated by the question which will be asked in chapter four who is this man the religious leaders think well whoever he is he's claiming to be god And what Jesus should do at this point, if he is a good, godly, humble man, is say, oh, goodness me, no, I wasn't claiming to be God. No, 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 you've misunderstood me entirely. What I was saying is God has sent me with the message of forgiveness. I was just, I was just saying, I've come with God's message of forgiveness for this man, but I, wouldn't, I wasn't saying he's forgiven. My goodness, no, I'm not God. But he doesn't do that doesn't do that at all. He basically says, you're right to think that. So either I'm a blasphemer or I'm God. Now let me prove to you who I am. And that's precisely what he does. Verse 11. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Public, instant, total healing. He's carried in on his mat and he carries his mat out of the room. Now at one level, yeah, only God can do that. Great, point proved. It's not less than that, but I do think it is more than that. There is more going on here. 
This is not just a random demonstration of power that, hey, look, I'll prove I'm God by I'm going to make everybody in the room hover 10 feet off the ground or, or make a foot grow out of the man's head. It's not just a random thing that nobody could do. No, he proves he can forgive sin by healing this man's desperate ailment, healing his legs. And as he does so, I think he helps us grasp why we should long for forgiveness of sin. And it has to do with the link between sin and suffering. You see, when Jesus returns, he is going to remake the world and he invites us to join him in an everlasting future where there'll be no cancer, no paralysis, no poverty, no loneliness, no depression, no miscarriages, no divorce, no war, no slow decay into death. But we cannot enter that future unless our sins are dealt with. Sin brought all that misery into the world. And it's only if our sin is forgiven and and got rid of that we can enter that perfect world without ruining it. So, I mean, Jesus' early ministry, in in some ways, it's like a show home. If you've ever been to um, a new housing development... I mean, there's more fun things to do with your weekend. But if you've ever been to a new housing development, quite often what happens is they, the first thing they do is they build a show home. And the point is, this is what it will be like. Now, the, the area is just, I mean, it's an absolute mess. It's just full of mud and noise and dangerous machinery moving around. It looks horrific. You wouldn't want to live there. But they build the show home to say, yeah, look, it's horrible at the moment. But if you um, pay a small fortune right now, then this is what you'll live in. This is what life will be like. It's not like that at the moment here, but we're going to transform it and it'll be like this when you live here. And Jesus is, in some ways, his early ministry is a bit like that. He goes around, he gets rid of evil. He heals the sick. He teaches people uh, the truth and the best way to live. He raises the dead. He's saying, look, this is the show home. Put your trust in me. Have your sins forgiven. You'll be able to join God forever in a paradise like that. Nothing like the world is now, but I'm going to transform all that mess. So Jesus heals this man's legs to prove he has the authority to forgive sin and as a hint that the forgiveness of sin will lead to the answer to all the things we are aware of and we do long for change in. It's a hint to this man if your sins are forgiven, you're going to spend eternity walking, running, and dancing for delight. Okay, let's, let's just spend a couple of minutes thinking what we should do with, uh, do with this passage. Well, very simply, if you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus this morning, then I urge you, put your trust in him. Turn to him and find forgiveness. The painful issues that all of us are aware of in our lives, the financial struggles, the relational breakdowns, the the sicknesses, they're like the earthquakes and floods in the world around us. They're a spiritual fire alarm, a horribly unpleasant, painful to the ears thing that warns us of a deadly raging danger so that we'll get out before it's too late. Judgment day is coming. And when you do turn to Jesus... His forgiveness of sins is like his healing of this man. It's not, uh, forgive sins, now here's 15 things you must do. It's get up and walk. Instant, complete, total forgiveness. 
all sin gone, taken by Jesus with nothing left for us to do except dance and sing and rejoice that we've been set free. If you put your trust in Jesus this morning, there's no process of forgiveness. There's no come back when you've proved yourself. There is simply get up. You're forgiven. Rejoice. As instant and as complete as the healing of the paralyzed man. So turn to Jesus. Receive that forgiveness. If you are a Christian already, then uh, two things. Uh, First, let the Spirit remind you through Mark 2 just how good it is to be forgiven. Because the thing is, when you wake up to another hospital appointment, when you wake up to another frosty silence, when you wake up to another overdue payment demand, when you wake up to another day with deepest longings unfulfilled, it can be so easy to forget, I also wake up forgiven. I also wake up one day closer to joining Jesus in paradise. We can, we can doubt God's goodness because life can be painful and hard and disappointing and, and God doesn't seem to do anything about it. But he's done everything about it. In coming and dying on the cross to forgive us, Jesus has dealt with the sin that brings the misery into our lives and the sin that would stop us joining him in paradise. And one day we're destined for an eternity so good you cannot even begin to imagine how wonderful it'll be. Remember how good it is to be forgiven. And secondly, take sin seriously. I think for... For much of my life, I thought, um, as an adult Christian, I thought sin was like a a viper with lethal venom. But Jesus' death on the cross means the fangs have been removed. So it can't do me any harm at all. I think many Christians think that way, which is why we're so often blasé about sin. We just don't think it's a particularly big deal to lie at work a little, toy with sexual immorality, greedily accumulate wealth, drink heavily. But the nature of sin doesn't change just because we're forgiven. Sin remains a deadly viper and its fangs still drip venom. Thankfully, Jesus is, if you like, the anti-venom, 100% effective to stop those who are bitten from dying. But the bite remains horrible and does real harm. And when we play with sin, if we'll stretch the analogy, quite often it's others who get bitten worse. Sin always spreads and creates misery. So hear Jesus' warning and take sin as seriously as he does. Turn to him for forgiveness. Turn away from sin. Have nothing to do with it. Flee from temptation and fight to the death the sinful desires we have. I want to um, close with words of a friend of mine I caught up with um, a week ago. He's in the middle of a, of a horrible battle with cancer. But he wrote... Um, of the blessing of how cancer had brought him and his wife closer and had given a new richness to friendships. But then he said, but these alone are nothing compared to the ultimate blessing that I have in Christ. He has dealt with my biggest problem, so all other problems fall away. My biggest problem is not cancer. My biggest problem, the real cancer in me, is my sin, my selfishness, self-centeredness, the evil within me. That is, setting myself at the center of the universe, the exclusion of God and the detriment of others. 
this has been dealt with by Jesus at the cross. He has died the death that was mine to die. He has borne the consequences that were mine to bear. He has taken the wrath that was mine to receive. He offered himself freely that I might live. Took on all the muck and filth of my sin that I might face the day of judgment without fear. For it is his record, not mine, that will be presented to the judge. Cancer is miserable, but how can I not be full of joy? Let's pray. Our Father God, uh, we thank you for the sober warning of Jesus, of the seriousness of sin. But we thank you that he warns as one who has come to forgive. Help us, we pray, to receive his forgiveness today trusting in his death in our place and help us to rejoice knowing that whatever else causes pain and disappointment and difficulty in our lives our greatest our greatest problem our most miserable enemy has been defeated and we are free from sin help us to rejoice in that we pray in Jesus name amen